0: Hi and welcome back to Your School is Effing You, a podcast about all the ways that the modern institution of education is failing students, teachers, and democracy. I'm your host, Timothy Budd. I'm a teacher of philosophy and humanities in Montreal, Quebec, and Canada. I want to return to a topic we were discussing in the last episode. Our addiction to standardization, and especially the promise it brings of being scientific. Education, we're told, can be a science rather than an art. I think this is bullshit. So let's start today with a little thought experiment. Bear with me for a minute. Imagine you have a class of 30 excellent students. You ask them to take a spelling test of 25 words. Because they are excellent students, they each spell all 25 words correctly, of course. As a result, their performance does not fall on a normal curve. So what do you do? Well, you adjust the test to make it harder. But let's say you overshoot. Now, none of the students spell any words correctly, and they all fail with a zero. Once again, no curve. So, one more time, you adjust the test. And voila, you've found the sweet spot, like Goldilocks. You've managed to create a curve. A few students ace the test, a few fail, but the majority fall somewhere in the middle. But what are you really measuring now? Was the first test not an accurate measure of your students' knowledge? What about the second test? It seems to me both were perfectly legitimate measures of what your students know. And both provided evidence of where you need to work with them. What you've really measured in the third scenario is your ability to structure a test in such a way as to give you a curve. And to be sure, that is all you've measured. I've started calling this the Goldilocks story, and just like the story of the little girl with the bears, the beds, the bowls of porridge, it may sound fanciful, but I promise you, it's not. Grades ruin everything. This is episode five. Does grading on the curve make grading more objective? Spoiler: It does not. All right, so let's start with a reminder of the origin of the use of the curve in education measurement. Here's a quick recap: The curve is introduced at the exact same time as we discover exactly how much variation and unreliability there is in grading. Edgeworth advises it in the 1880s, long before Starch and Elliot, Rugg advises it, Meyer advises it, Kelly advises it, all recommend it for the same reason, as a remedy for variation and unreliability in grading. The logic I find a bit strained. Remember, Starch and Elliot originally found a standard deviation of 7 and some change. They were able to reduce it to 5, which allowed them to recommend a 9-point scale a-plus, a-minus, b-plus, b-minus, c-plus, c-minus, d-plus, d-minus, and f, rather than a 100-point scale. If we cannot, with any reliability, distinguish between an 87 and an 83, for example, then why use a scale that makes this pretense? Is their reasoning? And this seems a pretty legitimate move to me on the surface. But once you have fewer categories, it makes sense to establish them on a curve. The suggestion here is that the categories fit nicely into percentiles, if you make them fit. In other words, you should notice our Goldilocks problem here once again. Curves are perfect for adjusting grades to make them fit curves. But why bother with all of this? Because the curve holds out the promise of science. In order to understand this promise, we have to talk about IQ. In order to be made a science, educational measurement needs a stable characteristic to measure, like height, for example. I'll come back to this example in a moment. Researchers in the 1800s found their stable trait in IQ. Indeed, IQ and the use of the standard curve in education are twins born in the same Petri dish. If IQ is a stable trait, it should fall on a standard curve the way that height does. And this is the move we see in the early 20th century. I quote Shinsky and Tanner here. The concept of grading on a curve arose from studies in the early 20th century suggesting that levels of aptitude, for example as measured by IQ, were distributed in the population according to a normal curve. Some then argued if a classroom included a representative sample from the population, Grades in the class should similarly be distributed according to a normal curve. If educational measurement is about a fixed natural trait like IQ, then we can treat education the way we think of other empirical sciences. Not all of our researchers use the term IQ. Meyer calls it mental ability, rug inherited capacity, In any case, there's much that is dubious about this, beginning with the concept of IQ in general, and certainly IQ as a fixed natural trait. But even if you think of IQ as a measure of the quote-unquote natural order, it is the teacher's job to break the natural order, as Clyde Brezzi claims in On Grading on the Curve. And here again I quote, If this is the way things really are, why fight it? The curve does indeed reveal the natural order of many things. But good teachers, parents, physicians, scientists, and politicians are never satisfied with the natural order of things. They set about to change it, to destroy it if possible. We are not content to allow the incidence of polio and smallpox to follow a normal curve. Teachers need to be freed, and here administrators can help from any compulsion to make distribution charts and comparative judgments of pupil learning for grading purposes. So, the curve holds out the promise of science, but can it deliver? Here we have to look at the difference between predictive and evaluative judgments. And here I'm relying on the book Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment by Kahneman, Siboney, and Sunstein. Predictive judgments have to do with where the next example will fall on a distribution. This is the proper use of a curve, in fact. Take the classic example of height. We begin with an empirical examination of subjects. We take a sample, and we form a curve from that. It should be distributed normally, many in the middle, with some outliers at each end. Now we can ask, what are the odds that the next person to come along falls in the middle or at one of the extremes. The very nature of the curve which divides the sample into percentiles allows us to predict quite easily. That is precisely what the curve is for. Even here, by the way, there are limitations to its use. That is, if we make two curves based on two different studies, one of the average height in the US and the other of the average height in Timor, the average height on the first curve will not be comparable to the average height on the second. Even though both curves will be normal, they will look the same. Even before we get to the problem of the nature of the curve in evaluative judgments, you should see a problem here. Imagine comparing a grading curve from one class to a grading curve of another class, of one teacher to another teacher, of one school to another school. They have different teachers, different students, different needs. The curves are going to look the same, but they're not going to mean the same thing. Now, evaluative judgments. Here's the problem with imagining grading as similar to studying height. While our study of height begins with an empirical, that is to say, a posteriori investigation of actual heights as they naturally occur in a population... In the case of grading, we have to make the assumption that intelligence or understanding or performance or progress, capacity, IQ, whatever it is you decide that you are testing actually falls on a curve. That is an initial assumption that you must make. Then you have to design a test, a method of measurement, that forces your subjects or their measured traits to fall on that curve. So now let's go back to our thought experiment from the beginning. You design a test that is too easy, and there's no normal curve. Design one that's too hard, and you have the same problem. So when you find your test producing a curve, what are you actually revealing? Is it student performance, intelligence, understanding? I think you're revealing your ability to create a test that gives you a curve, and that's all. So, let's actually go back to the thought experiment, because you may think it's describing a very unlikely scenario. In 2008, Kulik and Wright ran a simulation analysis of the impact of grading on a curve. Alright, so here's what's meant by a simulation analysis. The study does not sample actual students in actual grades, actual exams, actual institutions... Instead, it uses a random number generator within certain parameters, which I'll explain in a minute, to assign grades to students. There's no pretense here to looking to see if grades actually, that is in real life, fall on a curve. Hopefully you realize this can't be done anyway. As we've already discussed, grades fall on a curve to the degree that you force them to fall on a curve. The question is, when you force a curve, does it represent fairness, and objectivity? Does it deliver on the promise of being a science? So here are the parameters. What Kulik and Wright do is determine an initial curve of what they call preparedness. This they define simply as the ability to answer a question or a group of questions on a test. This is the stable characteristic or trait that they are going to use to establish a curve. So, 50% preparedness, for example, would mean that a student is familiar with 50% of all the possible test material. Notice, this does not automatically mean that a student who is 50% prepared will get a 50 on a test. And this point is important, we'll come back to it, but this point is important. The question is, what material will actually appear on the test? If only the 50% with which the student is familiar is on the test, she could get 100%. Again, I'll come back to this. This is going to be important. So their purpose is to test what I'm calling the Goldilocks story. They're going to start with what they imagine to be a typical class of 400 university students. What exactly is a typical class? Well, this they can define. They begin by setting the mean at 75%, so let's say a B. The range is between 50 and 100, which is exactly what you expect to see. Finally, they put the standard deviation to 8.3, essentially one-sixth of the range. How are they typical? Well, we've defined them to be typical. The average is 75, not 90, not 95 the range is between a failure and a perfect exam, and the standard deviation is relatively large, meaning you have a diverse group of students. Some of them are going to do better, some of them are going to do worse. So when you use these parameters to generate random scores on three different tests, which in this case are imagined to make up the final grade for the class, you get a histogram that looks like a curve, exactly as expected, because it is exactly as designed. But now that we have both preparedness and final grades, we can check them for correlation. Does a student's preparedness translate into a similar final grade? Do the grades match preparedness? Now, the correlation is pretty strong, 0.81. But if you look at the actual grades, you find that a student who was 75% prepared may have received as low as a 60 or as high as an 80 on the final mark. The question is, why? And the simple answer is, principally, the luck of the draw. Someone who is 75% prepared may see an exam that has only material from that 75% with which he is familiar, or only the 25% with which she is not. Okay, that's our first scenario. Now the Goldilocks twist. Curves are especially promoted in elite universities, usually to avoid grade inflation. Though, what some call grade inflation, we may just want to start calling success, especially among highly motivated and experienced students. But that's just a digression. So, How does this scenario play out at an elite institution? The average preparedness should presumably be higher, so Kulik and Wright set it at 95%. But there should also be less difference between the students, since such institutions are so highly selective. So imagine a much lower deviation, which will also mean a much lower range, if you're following along you probably can predict that although you will have a curve, it will be heavily skewed to the right. So you'll have a curve, but not a standard curve. But we have to have a standard curve. That's the point. So what do you do? Well, you have two options. First, you can just move your curve to the center, effectively assuring that a student who scored an 80 or an 88 gets a D. Or second, you can make the test harder. And this is simple to model. Now all you have to do is reduce the average preparedness back down to 75%. But because you have students at a highly selective, elite institution, you have to leave the range and the deviation where they are. These students are very similar to one another. The result of such a move, that is, making the test harder, is indeed a standard curve, exactly what we wanted, because this is what we designed. But the correlation between the final grades and preparedness is now much lower than it was before. Now it's 0.23. In other words, grading on a curve does not ensure in this case that performance will match preparedness really at all. So that someone with an 80% in preparedness can get anywhere between a 65 and a 90, anywhere between a D and an A minus. So in case you're curious they do talk about the third possible scenario. The underachievers, let's call them. Kulik and Wright imagine a group of 400 monkeys taking a test with 20 yes-no questions. So what's the average preparedness? It's exactly 50%. They have a 50-50 chance of getting it right by virtue of indicating yes or no. At the same time, all of these monkeys are very similar in preparedness there's going to be a very small range and a very small deviation. Now, you can force a curve. You can make the answers fall on a curve, indeed. But now the correlation between the final grades and preparedness is a dismal 0.01. So, what's the point of all of this? Well, the curve holds out, once again, the promise of science and objectivity. In order for it to actually be objective, if that's even a thing here, we need a stable and measurable trait. Traditionally, IQ has served here. The concept is incredibly dubious, but even if we substitute something like preparedness, a concept that's far less powerful because made up for the purposes of this very study, and which can be tailored to our needs we still find that the curve does not result in a fair or objective grading system. Excellent students are receiving poor marks. Poor students are not being helped to improve. And much of this is by design. That is, much of this is because we are told to make our tests harder to ensure enough students fail. But the underlying factor throughout is that much of the lack of correlation can be accounted for by sheer luck. In the end, the use of the curve is accomplishing only two things. First, it is forcing students to compete for artificially rare A's. And I will definitely come back to the topic of competition in the classroom in future episodes. Second, it allows teachers, administrators, school districts, university presidents, to feel like they are somehow doing something objective, to feel like they are doing science. But none of this is scientific. Education is an art, and that's a good thing. As always, thanks for listening. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to email me at yourschooliseffingyou at gmail.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider sharing with your students, your teachers, your colleagues, your family. I'm happy to announce that in a week or two, you'll hear a voice other than my own in an actual interview. I'm calling the interview series, Hearing Voices. If you'd like me to reach out to somebody for an interview, send me a message. And it rain on the it pour, it pour, Intro and outro it music is Don't Let It Rain by Old Savannah. Young score I feel